1: The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco.
0: Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard will make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San
1: Antonio.
2: All right, I'd like to welcome Clint Patterson to the Waco History Podcast. Welcome, Clint. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So, uh, Clint, besides from listening to a couple of episodes, he told me, which was a little bit of pandering, but uh, Clint is uh, has uh, changed teams and, and he works at Texas A&M University now as an instructional consultant. But his uh, his blood is green and uh, his his legacy is green. Longtime a Baylor family, he is uh, Dr. Patterson is a. A Trained historian, uh, graduating from uh, Baylor with a history degree in 2005. A uh, a mentee of uh, Mr. Robert Reed, uh, which uh, many of uh, longtime Wacoans and and Baylor folks uh, may know. The legend of Mr. Reed. That might be a great other episode. <laughs> that really uh, would be. <laughs> where we could talk about Mr.
3: Reed a bit. The, the myth and the legend.
2: That's right. There there are a lot of stories stories to be told. But I've invited uh, Clint here today to talk about the uh, Baylor Bear uh, Live Mascot Program, the fact that there are bears here in Waco, and there have been bears here in Waco for more than a century now. And Clint has uh, done a lot of research on the bear program. It's a student-led bear program, which makes it unusual as a live mascot program. Uh, but so we're going to get into that. And I think it, I think uh, folks will find it interesting here locally. And so Clint, I want to start out by uh, someone who just was shocked to hear there's bears in Waco. Uh, just give us a little bit of background of, of how that came to be and, and uh, the early years of the program.
3: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the the bears at Baylor and in Waco goes back to um, 1914. So, uh, this was actually a poll and a contest, uh, by students. So student led student initiative of what is our college mascot? Uh, what should we be? And there's a lot of fun, um, short little stories about, you know, Baylor was almost the Baylor Buffaloes, uh, or the bookworms, uh, but
2: that was my favorite.
3: Yes. <laughs> Ultimately cooler heads prevailed and the student body voted in 1914 that we would be the baylor university bears but for the first few years we were bears only Um, this is uh, we did have our school colors green and gold by this time but uh, we were kind of the bruins the the bears there was no um, set identifiable image uh, or animal associated with that. And then you know, if we think in the larger historical context, this is right around World War One, uh, and U.S. was preparing uh, and kind of entered World War One, 1917, and around that time, Camp MacArthur existed in Waco. Uh, you know, not not terribly near uh, Baylor University campus, but there was a cadet or uh, an airman, somebody at Camp MacArthur who, lo and behold, had a live bear. Don't know how you would have that in a your tent or you know with a battalion, but uh, this individual was called to ship out with uh, the troop from Camp MacArthur to join World War One. Baylor uh, students approached him and said, "We're the Bears. We don't have a bear. We'll take care of your bear if you'll loan us or, or give us your bear." So. Uh, the first live bear uh, joined and came on campus uh, 1917, 1918, kind of that winter. Uh, it's been debated if it's, 20, if it's 1917 or 1918, but that's when the first bear arrived on campus. Uh, and then a you know, notable trainer was right around the Great Depression, 1930s, Bill Boyd and Joe College. There's a lot of uh, neat pictures just this massive bear who would ride in the back of a Model T Ford uh, all around Waco, all around campus and go to the football games, uh, be tethered uh, with a a leash and kind of stick to the ground. Um, So Baylor has really had bears since 1917 on campus. And over the course of time, there's uh, been 53 bears. uh, And currently there's two mascots, uh, judge Joy Reynolds and judge Sue Sloan, uh, on campus. But so there've been bears over a century, like what you said.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that you may not know about Dr. Patterson is he's got a four-year-old at home and it's at some point Beck is going to ask for a pet and, uh, then there there's the getting of the pet and then there's taking care of it. So, so do we know, I mean, so they asked for this bear. And they get the bear on campus. Do we know what steps they take early on to house this thing? And
3: yeah, it's a it's
2: a bear. It, it is a bear.
3: Well, a side note: I also uh, presented in my graduate school days in a human development class about the similarities between raising a, a bear cub and a toddler. This is long before I had a toddler, but I could tell you about bottle feeding and you know the late nights uh, of. Raising a, a bear cub on, on campus, as other trainers could as well. So, um, yeah, this it, it is very unique. Uh, and you know, for the bears on campus, uh, historically we would uh, acquire the bears as a cub. So, uh, bears are typically born kind of during the winter, early spring uh, of each year. And uh, with Joy and Lady, they arrived on campus in June. Um, and so, kind of early summer, it would be about 20, 25 pounds. Um, and they s- lived, believe it or not, in the Bear Trainer's apartment. Uh, and so, this is off campus, uh, but there is a, a story when Joy, so this would have been 2001, um, lived in the Trainer's apartment. So, the trainers were uh, Tyler Sellers, Ryan Fitzhugh, and uh, ben Simpson, they all were in the apartment. Uh, Joy, as the you know, thirty-pound bear cub, had the bottom-floor room, and
1: one of my my roommates who had his own room mm-hmm. was gone for the summer, so we moved all the stuff out. Uh, we put down probably three layers of painters' plastic, mm-hmm. uh, and then we went to this carpet store, and we just said, "We've got a ten-by-ten 10 room." Do you have what? What do you have right. scrap wise? And so we, we mm-hmm. basically have four layers of carpet that we put down. Okay. And then kind of put bricks along the walls to hold it down. Mm-hmm. And that's that was Joy's room. Right. Um, and she would, you know, that's where she stayed most of the day. She was too small to be in the pit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't want to freak chance, chance out. out. Right. And so we we just sort of kind of go along with that. Um, but, you know, there were, there were nights sometimes where we always knew she was very smart. She would, um, I remember we were watching a movie one night and all the lights were off. And I remember looking to the side and peering over the couch with these two little eyes. And she had some, she figured out how to turn the doorknob of her room and get out. And so, um, but, you know, I remember it was always fun times like that.
3: I think it was really uh, FOMO, isn't it? The fear of missing out. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah.
2: So, so hip. Uh, So hip with the current (laughs) lingo.
3: Yes. Um,
2: So I want to, I want to go back historically a bit to Mm -hmm. kind of what we know and maybe what you discovered in your research about uh, kind of the interaction of uh, the bear on campus in those early years, 20s, 30s, um, you know, where, where they're kept, uh, you know, when, when you would see them, that sort of thing. Yes.
3: Okay. Well, there's not much in terms of primary sources, uh, from that time, there is an older book, uh, by S E Forrester O'Brien, uh, longtime um, Waconian and she wrote a book in the early 1950s, uh, really chronic, Cling, I guess the first 30 years of the mascot program and the bears, uh, again, would range from size. You had uh, Billy, who was with Bill Boyd. Bill Boyd, some of the listeners may remember, owned a a gas filling station uh, near campus and uh, actually had uh, Bill, uh, I guess, Judge stuffed uh, in his filling station. And, you know, my dad would tell stories of he'd be walking by and Here's Bill Boyd, uh, I guess at that time, probably, you know, 60, 70 years old. And he's talking to, I guess, judge there at the filling station. And, you know, so I can just uh, imagine what that would have been like going to and from campus and and around town. Um, Other bears at the time, you know, these are wild bears, typically, you know, nobody um, cared for bears, but these are bears that uh were abandoned or or found they were um i think at at times injured maybe and maybe a donor uh coconut coconut hall on campus is named after a baylor donor Um, there's a story of how he donated a bear to campus and uh but american black bears are actually native to texas uh and so you see them uh sometimes kind of in east texas in the uh, big bend area as well but um They're native actually in 48 of the, uh, states and they go all the way down into Mexico too. So historically there's not a lot of records, my, uh, research. I'm really, uh, pleased just recently as a matter of fact, Stephen uh, interviewed Mr. Frank Ingraham, uh, and he was a, a trainer in the late 1940s. So that's as far back as, uh, my oral history can go, but, uh, I'm really Excited to that I was able to visit with him. We actually had two interviews, um, and you know, of what life was like in, in uh, Waco uh, as well. He uh, was mentored in many ways by Pat Neff, who was president and uh, emeritus at, at the time. But as trainer, uh, I mean, there's a lot of colorful stories, uh, right, of the the Bears and this is in a different age and time, different context than where we are today, uh, in many ways, but yeah, there's just some, you know, we talked about myth and legend earlier. You, there are some stories that I guess being around the program for 16 years, I've heard of them. It's like, did that really happen? And then some of this oral history, I've been able to learn, I guess, kind of the, the Paul Harvey, and now you now you know the rest of the story almost. So that's been uh, very fun just to preserve both the lived experiences of the the trainers and uh, people who cared for the bear, but uh, also just put it in a larger context of the hundred plus years of the program.
2: I know you were you for a long time. You were trying to get a trainer from the '40s, so what are some things that kind of stood out to you from that interview that you were able to conduct?
3: Uh, I think there is, uh, I'd say in the, with that particular interview, we focused a lot or the narrator did on Baylor and the experiences there. Uh, just very unique stories, again, of days in the past. Some of your listeners may be familiar with it, but this individual hitchhiked all the way from Tennessee to Baylor, and that's how he arrived to Waco and started day one. Uh, and that's something that I can't imagine doing that whenever I started school in 2001, but, uh, he, he said he hitchhiked, I guess it was with four people. And there was only one that he really prayed because he thought he, the driver was inebriated, but he made it where he needed to uh and like i mentioned uh president neff really mentored him so uh president neff former governor of texas uh longtime uh, central texas lawyer as well um mr ingraham ro- really wanted to get into the law and uh, so he um really shadowed president neff at president neff's request and so Really, about two, three o'clock every day, Frank would go in and sit in the president's office and just take notes, watch the president's interactions with others and with administrators, and um, really, I think, became a foundational experience for Ingraham's, you know, future years and, and career in law. Uh, as far as the the bears go, uh, there were stories uh, in that interview of. Uh, about a car crash uh, coming back. I believe it was from Louisiana uh, and how the bear injured their uh, their leg coming back from a football game. And they're on the side of the road and again, long before interstates. And so they're out there with an, an injured bear. And one trainer had to bum a ride to go to a local veterinarian. And I can only imagine middle of the night, you know, the vets awoken Oh, we have an injured bear Uh, so there's um, stories of that and there's a lot of you know we talked about the student experience so Mm -hmm. again these are 18 to 22 year old students who have responsibility not just for the university's live mascot but for a wild bear and you know that also includes um, the operations so you know, maintaining the, the care of the facility, and there's been, I guess, all told, probably about four or five facilities, uh, mostly on campus. Uh, really interesting too, when the new, or I guess the current facility right now, the Bill and Everett Williams um, Bear Habitat, was donated and really, uh, I guess, launched 2005 Homecoming. But during the excavations. Of the former pit uh, or the Steve Hudson Memorial Bear Plaza that was there. And a lot of uh, Waconians probably remember the concrete in the moat since 1976 to 2005. But during the destruction of that, we realized there was even another habitat or facility underneath that. And there were still some remains there. So, really interesting, um, you know, within the student is the Baylor Chamber of Commerce, and they do a lot of um, care and service for Baylor University. One of those is the mascots, but it's really an informal education environment, informal training. So, you know, like I mentioned, there's no book on bear training, but a lot of this is apprenticeship model. So the students would um, work closely with students who have more experience in working with the Bears understand the Bears mood and temperament uh, and it's been that historically since uh, I guess the Chamber students um, probably started taking care it sounds like 1930s you know before then it's just a I would assume a ragtag team of of students who were interested oh this I'm going to to Baylor to train a Bear Uh, but you know, you know, in the larger world of college mascots, it's also very unique and uh, sadly a declining tradition that you have a, a live mascot, um, you know, much less one that lives on campus, one that is in a licensed, you know, USDA zoo, um, one that is wild too. That is a,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, that tradition where, you know, Houston used to have a cougar, and uh, there was always the Razorback. You know, old Southwest Conference days, and um, I think the mascot tradition seems more um, Southern United States than Northern United States, mm-hmm. uh, at least the animals um, that that I'm familiar with. And
2: yeah, how many programs are left, Clint, that kind of still have a live mascot?
3: I I think there's about eighteen to twenty. Uh, okay, so and but some of these are you know not wild or most of them are not wild you does
2: know. reveille count
3: it, it reveille would count uh but then so would bevo that does not reside on campus or, UGA. Uh, yeah. or, or right so um yeah and very few of those are student-led student-driven uh as well some are um UGA, for example is really uh a donor family and we're talking uga the bulldog at uh the University of Georgia and that's just uh from a uh, i guess a an alum in their family mm-hmm. there's a neat story about uga and the bears uh well, so, please tell it <laughs> yes so this goes back to 1957 and uh Baylor actually had a good football team uh, that particular year. Uh, they were cruising in very few bowl games at that time, you know, unlike today. Uh, but Baylor qualified and earned uh, in the 1956 season to play in the 1957 Sugar Bowl. Uh, and they played it against the University of Tennessee uh, in that particular game. Uh, and there's a, a neat picture. You can find it on the internet. Uh, about the bear you who know, with charles clark on leash as a former trainer and we played tennessee in the sugar bowl right and after the game or during the halftime they tried to bring the their dog yes and it, or, they,
0: the bear had already run the aggie dog away off the football field at baylor stadium right but it's really it's really interesting because they brought this Tennessee um uh, some kind of hound, some kind of hound. Oh, yes, sir. And they brought him up. The same thing. I said, please keep the dog away. <laughs> Didn't do it and the bear lunges and the dog turns to run and a photographer took that picture. It's a great picture. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it appeared on the front page of the Times Picayune the next morning. Oh, really? <laughs> it's Banner, uh, Batch, Tennessee, or something like that. <laughs> and it's a picture of the bad luncheon after the dog with the dog run.
3: Very interesting, just what nuggets I think can exist in an oral history narrative and uh, how they connect to sometimes a, a wider lens both history of the institution or of the community
2: yeah and I I uh, you actually uh, brought some of your stories that you've gathered with us and so I, I think it'd be fun now to to play a uh, the uh, Charles Clark story about Pancho the bear and uh, I, I don't know if you want to set this up at all as we go into the clip
3: that was a story that was also new to me uh, through oral history and uh, so this is the late 1950s, uh, and Charles Clark is, is one of the bear trainers and Poncho's the bear, uh, Poncho's a Mexican brown bear. So donated to the university, uh, by way of Denison of, of all places. Um, and just, a um, an unruly <laughs> bear is kind of how I describe him, uh, appropriately named Poncho Villa.
0: He was there. Oh, I don't think I have heard
3: of him. Well, uh, he was there for a short time and did lots of damage. <laughs> it sounds like it. Wow. Oh, well, yeah, thanks for, for sharing. Uh, I, I, actually, I don't know. We were carrying him to a veterinarian one day. And we decided instead of getting the trailer and everything, we just put him in the front of his pickup. Right. Jesse, Birch, and I, and we put the poncho in between us. All right. We go around the traffic circle. Now that, uh, you know, is the traffic circle still there? Is there? on LaSalle and Valley Mills? Yes. Yes, yes. All right.
0: We're going around the traffic circle. That bear was standing in the front seat and we were out running beside the truck because the bear. had Run us both out of the pickup.
3: Around the circle.
0: Going around the circle. Casey <laughs> over here steering the to the pickup, and I'm saying, get in and drive. <laughs> and, and every time he tried to get in, Pancho would would hit him. <laughs> and so finally, we got we decided just hell we just got to do it. We just had to hit the pickup and fought the
3: bear until we got him to the vet. And, Got his shots or whatever he done. Right. But we got we got tired, of real quick, and decided <laughs> I, I I learned the difference between a brown a Mexican brown bear and a black bear. And you don't want a brown bear. Poncho's stay both at campus and in Waco was very short lived. Uh, just I think because of his demeanor. But there's a a neat story that Charles uh, shares about how they were going to go to the local veterinary and they had to drive around the circle. So
2: if you well, remember, I, well, let's don't give the, let's don't give the story away. Okay. We're, we're going to play the story.
3: All right. Yeah. Well, it, they survived the circle and I think they went to health camp afterwards. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right. So we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that story in there, which is the story of, uh, poncho wrestling, yes. uh, with the, uh, with the, the two trainers, uh, on the way to the event. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So that was a great clip. Now, now while we're playing, uh, clips, uh, some others that you brought with you that I think, uh, w- that our listeners would enjoy listening to, uh, there's a Gordon Smith, uh, story, uh, about, uh, another bear. And, and we talked about this earlier. There, there becomes a tradition where they're judge. Yes. When, when does that emerge?
3: That was more in the 1970s from, from everything that I've discovered. Uh, and so I think, um, both that's a, a judge and maybe going back to, Bill Boyd and his bear, large bear, again iconic, was named Judge, uh, but then also Judge Baylor, uh, the university's namesake. So uh, that really started in the 1970s. So there's a kind of a surname is Judge Sue Sloan uh, and Judge Joy Reynolds. Um, yeah, the uh, others, you know, it's there some very colorful names. You know, and it's fun if any of the listeners want to take a. a a trip over to see the habitat, you can actually walk on a paver uh, that has every bear's name. Uh, and it's a, a paw print that from Joy, the current bear, uh, but you'll see rough and tough, nip and tuck, uh, Pancho, and just uh, John the Baptist, for example, is also the name of one of the bears. Uh, so just really, really neat how, you know, I, sometimes I wonder who came up with that name uh, but I, I I love the names. So
2: you also brought a Gordon Smith story about Josephine.
3: Yes. So that, that I think that's a, a funny one your listeners will in, enjoy hearing as well. And uh, I'll just try to set that up uh, briefly. Uh, Josephine was uh, a longtime bear, uh, really spans several different trainers and Uh, across almost a a decade of time, Uh, and this is also the late 1950s that Josephine, they took Josephine to the football game uh, that was at, I guess, Waco Stadium at that time, Uh, and Baylor opened up the season playing Villanova, and just shows you, um, I think, one, the, I would say, how strong bears are, uh, and, but just that really happened, you know, it's one of those where did that happen? Did that not happen? Um, (laughs) and, you know, I've always heard similar stories, but that was the first time I've heard it from somebody who actually lived it.
2: All right. Well, let's, let's take a listen to that one. Now. You know, I don't know. I I really
0: don't know how much she weighed, Mm -hmm. but uh, I'll tell you what she was strong and I, if you want an example of her strength, I'll give it to you. Yes, sir. Um, it was our first game to take her to a football game. It was our home game. We were playing Villanova, and we had uh, gotten instructions from, the, I guess, the former bear trainers, probably, uh, as to the procedure, and what to do, and all that. And so we uh, we loaded Josephine up, put her uh, in her, you know, loaded her up in her trailer, and we. Uh, Drove out to the stadium and uh, got her out, and then uh, we. Uh, the the deal was to uh, run her out on the field and, and lead the team out. So instead of the L leaders leading the team out, uh, Larry and I, uh, Josephine had a leather collar, right, metal metal rings attached to each side, and a chain hook to each side. So we, Larry had a chain, I had a chain. So we, we, we lope her out on the, she lopes out on the field. We lead the team out. Everything's going good. Uh, the uh, warm-ups take place. And they had told us to, uh, to wrap her chain around a big, heavy uh, grate over a drain, big old iron grate over a drain right at the end of the player's bench, which we did. And so uh, we're about probably, th- the game started, and so Larry and I were probably about five yards, uh, maybe five yards away from her on the sideline, kind of down on our knees watching the game. And a while we'll turn around and check on her. Well, we turned around, and Josephine was not there. <laughs> she was not there. We look up. And I'll promise you, Clint. She has. She is going up into the stands. Oh my! Yeah, she's going up the up the steps. Uh, All right. Right through the right through the student body. <laughs> body is they're parting like the like the red sea. And so Larry and I, you know, go up after. Her and by the time we get to her, she's down around the refreshment uh, stands. Naturally. And, had died, I, I guess it was the you know first game of the season and all the noise and uh, she had literally pulled so hard that she snapped one of those rings in her collar and uh, uh, and, and just took off right Wow and we got her we got her by the collar and the other chain that was left dragging you know dragging and brought her back <laughs> out to the field.
2: So as we listen to that clip, one thing, Clint, and you've, of course, you have personal experience with this. This is not only a, a topic that you've researched about others' experience, but you've been a trainer yourself. And and I would think as you form relationships with this animal, you, you could come to forget it's a bear.
3: Yes. And, you know, this is something like what you said, you do form a connection, I think is how I've heard a lot of trainers talk about that. And, you know, again, you feed them every morning, you feed them every night, you're around the animal. And I think for, for a lot of people may identify with a a dog or or a cat. uh, And, you know, this is very similar. You know, the bear does have a personality. It does have, uh, tendencies, behavior, mannerisms, and, you know, for me, in my mind, um, you know, I always tried to have the mentality: I know the bear; the bear knows me. But the key is, I know the bear better than the bear knows me. <laughs> so yeah, you can kind of uh, maybe read some situations, and we do uh, or did a lot of scenario uh, in training. There's, you know, the bears are sharp teeth, sharp claws, um, so they are in a every sense a wild animal and, uh, it is a a licensed zoo where they are. So there's kind of zookeepers, even though Baylor doesn't have a zoology program or a veterinarian program. And these are students who spend a lot of time, uh, sort of in that apprenticeship model that I I spoke about earlier. Uh, but, you know, there's yeah. but safety, safety is definitely, Paramount and important.
2: Well, when you said uh, dog or cat people, you you gave a spectrum to me. I see dogs on one end, and so where where are bears on the spectrum of dog to cat?
3: <laughs> I I would say bears are probably not even on that spectrum. Maybe right. <laughs> uh, that, that would be but, a
2: mistake to place them on that spectrum.
3: Right. What uh, a few interesting uh, pieces from that. I've interviewed and talked with trainers who never had a pet growing up and then all of a sudden they're responsible for the bear uh and so just interesting to hear how they experienced that and you know formed that relationship or that attachment to the animal uh the other interesting piece uh unlike some of the pets that you know the listeners may have you know the dog and the cat is the bear always stays on campus so you have a rotating student personnel who would care for that. And uh, at times I would say the bears are getting older and stronger and the students are just getting less experienced because they're really coming in, you know, after the bear's been on campus for four or five years. And this is the student really understanding that, that you're trying to convey the context and former history of uh, that relationship with that animal and trying to, uh, Always ensure safety in your operations, but at the same time, some consistency uh, mm-hmm. as well. But yeah, it's a very it, unique experience. Yeah,
2: it's, it's got to be. And, and as you said, uh, becoming more and more unique. Um, right. and, I, and now we're in a context where, and we've, we've all been following uh, ladies' health challenges she's had mm-hmm. over the last year. But so we're in a situation now where we keep the bears for life. But that wasn't the case for most of the bear program. How were those decisions? Right. What drove those decisions about bears moving in and out of?
3: Yes. Well, that's a, a very good question. And, you know, with the really the turn into the 21st century is when those conversations kind of begin to pick up steam. They actually originated within the, the student trainers and Just with a realization, a call to really maintain care for the animals. um, Because prior to that, oftentimes we'd have a bear for a couple of years and then um, no longer after that. There were a few cases where the bear would span a decade, 14 years on campus, but um, those are, uh, that was not the norm. And so uh, here about 1997, uh, to 2000, there were conversations among the students who were caring for the bear. You know, we need to keep these animals for the entirety of their lives, which out in the wild would be about 15 years if you encounter the bear and that's if they survive that first year as a cub, which is often 50, 50, uh, percent chance in captivity because of better veterinary care and, you know, monitored their diet, they can live up to 20, 25 years. So certainly longer, uh, you know, on campus, you know, better, better health and, um, you know, but that was not the tradition. So like so many things in higher ed, if it is all centered around the tradition, right. Uh, and the, the norm of how that is. So, Uh, The students with some administrators began to change that, Uh, and over time with, you know, additions such as the Habitat on Campus 2005, which really expanded, made, you know, natural substrate that the animals were walking on. It's a wonderful facility, twice the size of what the all-concrete pit, as it, it was referred to, was. So, you know, better health for the animals. We had a very consistent, veterinarian and professional consultant for, uh, much of the years with lady and joy, uh, as well as some kind of consistency within the training as well. Uh, and really there's just neat stories about how joy and lady arrived on campus, 2001, 2020. I don't know if listeners know, but they're biological sisters. Uh, and that is just, uh, I think a sweet little, um, uh, story, uh, in itself about these animals, you know, bears are naturally solitary animals, but if you go by the habitat, you'll often see, uh, the two bears curled up together or, you know, foraging, uh, for some of the bait that the trainers put out, uh, but they do it together. So I think they certainly know their sisters, uh, and, uh, but they also kind of behave like sisters too. Uh, and you know, when, when they arrived, it was a year apart uh, but such a a sweet and good temperament. Uh, so, you know, I think that certainly was a contributing factor for keeping the bears their whole life. They were healthy, really good bloodline uh, that they came from too.
2: But it would seem it would present new challenges for the program that, that you've got mature bears that you're. Yes.
3: Yes. And, you know, really that was one of the driving factors of, why I approached the Institute for oral history is this is new territory for the bear program. And so, you know, as the, uh, hobby historian from my undergrad days, I wanted to talk to trainers who actually did care for adult animals. How did they do that? What did that look like? Even though the environment would be different, uh, that was still just a Point that we could potentially learn from in our care of the current animals. So uh, some of the, you know, challenges or barriers that were encountered over the last twenty years uh, with Lady and Joy is, you know, we used to always take the bears to the football games. You know, both, you know, Waco Stadium, Floyd Casey. We'd travel uh, with the bears. Uh, we'd go to different orientation and Baylor events, taking the mascots with them and here in about 2011 we uh, made the decision to remove the leash from the program so uh, we no longer would travel or take the bears to those places that were so familiar to the you know nearly 90 year history of the program at that moment in time but you know i think in many ways uh it changed the persona uh if that's the an appropriate word for the bear program that you know, it's a, now a much more interactive habitat. The uh, animals are out there. You feel, um, as a spectator, closer to it. And it's a that mesh fence, so you can really see the animals. You can smell them, you know, in, in many ways. And uh, so I think the experience at, uh, on campus really led to the habitat being called the most visited site of Baylor's campus, uh, Mm -hmm. right there off I-35, uh, if you make through some of that construction, you know, right there at at fifth street, but it's also one of the stops too. in some of these Waco, uh, tour companies, uh, and so it's, um, I think a really interesting piece when you do interact with whether an alum or, or somebody, and they may think Waco in different ways, and then maybe that conversation gets to Baylor and, oh, Do they have bears? Yeah, they may remember hearing something like that or, or seeing it. and um, yeah, so there's been, I would call it some growth, uh, you know in, in the last few years. Uh, and certainly, you know, with ladies' health, we're uh, all concerned and you know monitoring that closely. And that's a, an area that I think would be uh, wonderful to branch some of this oral history into. Uh, but, but we have not yet, it's all been before.
2: Well, and as we, as I think about the bear program and kind of stories I heard growing up and you being a Baylor person too, a lot of those stories circulated around kind of Southwest conference rivalries Mm -hmm. and, uh, those stories of, you know, was that true or was that not true? and can you tell listeners what i'm talking about or or maybe some stories that you gathered that you could play for us now that might uh, give us some insight into that
3: oh i i think that's a a wonderful idea so you know the southwest conference was full of live mascots and live animals Um, you know Revly at a and m bevo at texas uh shasta the the cougar with houston There's the Mustang at SMU, of course the the horse and the Master Raider at Texas Tech. So, um, I mean, this was almost a different era, right? Uh, And you know, the pageantry of the football game. You see the the mascot on the sideline, and you know the Red Raider leads the charge out onto the field, and uh, sometimes the the bear did that as well, Uh, and you know ran out, led the football team, and I think there's stories of the trainers just kind of holding on as they ran across the field and hope they make it to that food bucket uh, or the the ice bucket uh, on the other side. So it wasn't
2: spirit that was propelling the bear across the field. It was food bucket. Okay. Yes,
3: yes. Um, You know, there are uh, also uh, Charles Clark talks about in the 1950s how, you know, and again, 56 Baylor went to that sugar bowl, but the bear swiped at every single mascot uh during that 1956 season so you know the familiarity between mascots and you know there's legends uh or lore that growing up with the program and baylor you know kind of hear oh you know a m stole the mascot or you know different pieces and you kind of was that true how did, did they do it and why would they do it? I mean, it's a live bear with sharp teeth, sharp claws, um, but there's a, a really neat story in some of these oral history archives about, um, you know, kind of did UT steal the bear and what did that look like? Uh, so, and... so,
2: so lay out the stage for us. When is this and what was the, what was the uh, rumor or story?
3: <laughs> yes, so this would be about 19... 59, 1960 uh, and, you know, Baylor went to the sugar bowl, had a, a dismal season following that. And they're kind of getting back into football. The campus spirit is pretty low um, school spirit. So, you know, the, the rah-rah and all that. And UT's come into town uh, to play Baylor in football. And uh, there's a, a story that I heard first from one trainer that I interviewed and asked me, Hey, have you talked to this other trainer? I said, well, not yet. I'm going to interview him, uh, in a little bit and we'll ask him about the the time UT stole the bear. So it was interesting how kind of that snowball effect, you know, one story from one trainer leads me to another trainer. And, uh, this would be, uh, Gordon Smith it was trainer in 1959, 1960, uh, and. Yeah, I'm not sure how much you want me to reveal. Well, well a...
2: let's, let's let uh, Gordon Smith uh, speak now, since Gordon Smith's been introduced. Uh, let's let him speak to this legend of UT uh, stealing the bear. It was the week of the Texas game. Texas was coming
0: to Waco to play, and we, we were trying to think, you know, what can we do to really get everybody up, geared up for this game? And we, You know, we said, you know, what if Texas were to steal our mascots? That might really get people geared up, and uh, we might pull an upset. We were always the underdogs to Texas, so mm-hmm. so we decided that uh, we'd make that happen, and that we would never divulge it to anybody. Uh, however, in recent years, it's it's leaked out a little bit, but nobody, not you know, right, not a lot of people know about it. Uh, as far as people probably that remember those. Back that far, you know. Still think it was Texas that stole the bears, but actually it was not eight of us. But uh, we decided what what we would do. We would uh, we would get into the bear pit on uh, on Sunday night of game week, and we would get uh, rough and tough. And we would get John Minier, one of the bear trainers, in on it with us. But we'd leave Steve Thompson out in the cold because we wanted it to to really look real. Yes. And so uh, we didn't want to have to break into the bear pit, so we got John Minnier, the other bear trainer, with us. He was sworn to silence. We took turns. We took shots.
2: So, uh, not all legends uh, prove to be true. I guess is what we learn from that story.
3: Right, right, and, and I guess there, there's some legends that uh, you know if you tell one person, then odds are that'll eventually be shared with others. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, the one I had heard growing up was, and and always A and M always seemed to be involved in these these thefts. Right. Supposedly they stole the rice owl at one point and killed it and stuffed it and sent it back to rice. That's what I had heard. I don't don't know if that's true or not, but did they capture the bear or supposedly did they capture the bear at one point?
3: Yes, they they did capture uh, the bear, came up and kind of kidnapped the bear. Uh, I don't know if it was core or or not. Uh, And then on the way back down Highway 6 uh, toward College Station, they realized this bear had sharp teeth, sharp claws. You know, the bear clawed its way through the the car and really endangered the passengers and the driver in the car. Um, And then I I believe what I've always heard is uh, they ended up uh, killing the bear uh, on the, you know, after they kidnapped the bear. So, you know, there are certainly uh, stories where it's not all uh, fun and games or campus mm-hmm. pranks, you know, from one to the another. Uh, but, you know, I, I think how, again, I, I'm not doing oral history in this, but some of that legend is Bevo got its name because uh, A&M won 13 to zero uh, and branded a, a Longhorn steer. So um, again, not sure what is fact, what is not, uh, but it is, been a wonderful experience hearing from some of the people who actually lived it and, you know, it can sort through, uh, and kind of at times jog their memory, uh, w- with what it encountered and, and how they share that. Uh, but I think this is for the bear program, you know, there's really a couple of books that have been written one in 1950s and the other, uh, in the, I guess 1996, uh, and you know, but some of those have gaps and holes, and it's not inclusive of the whole hundred-plus year history. So that's been uh, really rewarding to try to um, really put together almost seven decades of those experiences. Um, yeah, you know, and that's I think a, a unique piece about this oral history.
2: Yeah. Well, you're going to write the definitive work on the bear program. It's just a just a matter of time.
3: Yes. So. Well, it, really, I think the narrators are writing it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh
2: a, another clip that, that you mentioned to share that I think is, is, uh, is a revealing clip. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Ryan's fits, Ryan fits you earlier, mm-hmm. and you had a clip where he's sharing about kind of the, the power uh, of the bear. And so yes. I, I thought we'd listen to that now.
3: I, I think that's great. That is one of my favorite clips for anyone who's never been around the bear. This will give you a sense of what that proximity is like and the both the majesty but also the strength of the animal.
1: Sometimes I catch myself thinking, you know, it's not like whatever I'm about to do, it's mm-hmm. not like I'm working with a wild animal. You know, right. I've done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's especially, I I'll always remember, I can just kind of Almost feel it in my fingers now. Like uh, when I first started working on Chance, I'd get food in front of him as quickly as mm-hmm. I could. But I remember just kind of patting him kind of inside his chest, like right here, mm-hmm. and just feeling that muscle. It just hard as a rock. He was just mm-hmm. uh, like he's just carved out of stone, you know, and right. just appreciating how mm-hmm. strong he was and uh, intelligent he was.
2: You, uh, um, in a, in a previous position when you were here, when I could see you more often and you were here on campus, one of the things you were tasked with was fan engagement and elements of kind of Baylor's traditions and history, which I think you were, you were built for that job. But I mean, as you think about kind of the larger idea of Baylor traditions and history, how do you feel like the live mascot, the, the bear program fits into that umbrella, as we think about what's distinctive about the place as an institution,
3: I think there's many, many pieces that make it um, both significant for the for the university. Uh, you know, it's a campus tradition, and so many times in higher ed traditions evolve or they go by the wayside and, you know, they're not carried on or continued. And this is a a tradition that, uh, you know, to kind of quote one of the narrators that, you know, Baylor really made its stance that we're going to maintain these two bears for their entire lives and we're going to do it the right way. We're going to have a wonderful habitat. We're going to have a licensed zoo on campus, wonderful facility, great animal care. We're going to be safe in how we, uh, approach it and do that. But at the same time, you also have ways that the tradition connects with former trainers, you know, that, you know, when 2017, uh, a wonderful memory for me, it was the bear centennial. And I kind of facilitated a discussion as the keynote with former trainers. We had four trainers that I did oral history with. And, uh, we asked them kind of at that banquet, uh, and we dialogued about their oral history and lived experiences with the bears. And we had trainers there from the 1950s, early 2000, late you know 2010 era as well. And there was both a commonality that they all had, uh, and there were unique distinctive moments of that snapshot in time of. Excuse me for the program that they were able to have. So I think doing a college tradition, uh, not just for the sake of tradition, is what we've talked about uh, in in our work at, at Baylor University. But doing things the right way, doing things um, you know safely, but ways that you can engage with a larger larger audience. So that's the habitat. That's through educational initiatives um, and. It's really, I think to me, it's a lot of what brings Baylor together uh, at times, you know, you have the the walkway leading up to the habitat that you can see, you know, where the bears started and how they, um, when they were here on campus and what their names were. But then all of a sudden you, you enter to the beautiful facility now, and it's like, here we are today. And this is... Such a unique facility to have a zoo on campus. I know LSU has the same thing right outside uh, their tiger football stadium. Uh, but that's just so so unique for where we find ourselves today, uh, and you know I've done a little bit of work in terms of sports uh, and the relevance kind of sport history and this project certainly uh, connects or contributes to that, but I'll tell you that is a very small corner of the literature uh, on you know, scholarly works for college mascots. Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
2: yeah, well, it it I, I think we're doing such a better service to the Bears now than we we did in the past. So, so my story, first encounter with the Bears is I came to see my brother who was in law school here in the seventies, and every day. I would go to corner drug, which used to be at uh spate and, Fifth, right. and I would buy a bag of lemon drops and I would go down and feed them to the bears. I would just throw yeah. them and feed them to the bears. Yes. And so I, I think about that every time I go to the new habitat, such a controlled environment and their, their diet is so set. And, and they and, of course,
3: and the sign says, please don't feed the bears.
2: Don't feed the bears. <laughs> And, you know, they uh, I was still encouraged to drink Dr. Pepper by the institution long after they stopped making the bears ingest Dr. Pepper. And so, you know, I I remember that from the games, the bears drinking Dr. Pepper.
3: And and Uh, that that is a tradition that many do remember stopped in the early 1990s because we learned that uh, bears are, are one of the few animals susceptible to tooth decay. Uh, so all that sugar, it's like giving sugar to, or Dr. Pepper to a little baby. Uh, but I think going back on your question about just putting it in context. So this is one, uh, I tried to approach a narrator, uh, from early 1940s. Uh, we were unable to do an interview, but I, I did in that correspondence receive a an email reply from his wife and so former trainer was states away uh battling dementia and you know struggling uh with memory uh for many many days and moments kind of throughout the day but his wife just wrote a short and sweet little note that one of the few moments that bring great clarity and joy for my husband is when he recalls being around the bears Mm -hmm. uh and and i just think that's such a, a a wonderful example that the bears are so much more than just a college mascot for the trainers who trained them is it was very much a a bond uh that was really unbreakable uh, unshakable that they were able to form and i think for many it's probably is the unique the most unique college student experience that exists yeah uh, so yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, I do think if I ever do write that book, I want to put that in the forward. Uh, yeah, that's
2: wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, well, Clint, you uh, you appreciate all you've shared with us and the stories that you've brought, but there's going to be the story that you should have told me that you're going to tell me now. So what's what's kind of another bear story that's a, that's a favorite that uh, you want to make sure we don't leave out?
3: Well... I would say, um, I think it's almost the story that hasn't been told yet. Uh, so for me, growing up around Baylor and family around Baylor, I actually had two uncles who helped take care of the bears uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. And strangely, those are the only two decades that I have yet to work on oral history, but I want to sit down with my uncles and hear about their stories. and uh, I, that was always a way that we bonded, uh, kind of Thanksgiving and Christmas times, you know, how are the bears doing, you know, and, you know, different, <laughs> different moments, but there's, uh, some funny, fun stories. I know that they have, uh, that I grew up around. And I mean, I remember, uh, seeing the bears as a l- little kid and, you know, so to me, I'd say the the stories that I want to share are those that I still want to get uh, yeah. for oral history. And um, you know, if you asked me to bring in a, a story that's already been collected, I w- I would say this one. It's you know, I think speaks both to the, I guess how how the program is uh, viewed by those who care for the animals. So our veterinarian um, in about 2003 or so, Joy had a a little uh, tooth issue and we needed to do some dental work, but our veterinarian was down here at Texas A&M, you know, faculty member in the veterinary uh, school. And so we brought, and I was part of this trip, uh, and one of the narrators has talked about it too, but brought the animal down, Joy, and um, to the veterinary clinic here sedated the animal which you know for for us was the first time we've seen the bear sedated uh which kind of traumatic in different ways um i remember and the narrator talked about how um, somebody walked in from the next clinic over and said there's a bear in there we have a tiger in here well all the bear students went to go see the sedated tiger and the tiger you know caretakers came to see the sedated bear but (laughs) But talking to the veterinarian, which was just a a wonderful story of his experience in you know forty plus years as a veterinarian throughout South America, South Central uh, United States, and Texas. But he knew his dentist here in College Station was a Baylor alum, so he actually invited that dentist over, who was a Baylor alum, to do the dental work for the Baylor Bear, and just how people kind of. everybody I think who has seen or been around the bear, they have their own story. They have their own Mm. lemon drop story. They have their Mm -hmm. own times that they remember or a situation that they saw or observed. And uh, so I I just think that's a way that the animals have connected to many more than just the trainers too, which is I think partly the original vision of those students long ago, I would assume.
2: Yeah, that's great. Well, Clint, I want to appreciate, I want to thank you for all the work you've done to, to document these stories and and all of the interviews that Clint has done are uh, online and available through Baylor University's collections. You can go to baylor.edu slash oral history, search the collection and and hear more of Clint uh, asking the questions and some of the great answers that he's gotten from the trainers over the years. You've been doing this project now almost 10 years.
3: Uh, almost. And uh, uh, We have, I guess uh, I was counting in kind of preparation for this 23 different interviews already. So, uh, and that's something that still have a a plan. There's, um, you know, I want to triangulate a few of these stories. I know there's a, an Aggie faculty member that I've encountered here. He, oh, are you the bear guy? I have a bear story. The bear, you know, jumped into the stands and sat next to me at one of the football games at Kyle field. So I need, I want to talk to him if I can do an Aggie uh, on the, you know, Baylor Institute for Oral History, uh, but then also track down that trainer and get their account of that moment.
2: That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, that's that's good. That's good research uh, investigation. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks, Clint. I appreciate yeah. you coming on the Waco History Podcast.
3: Thank you. This was wonderful.
0: Right home, that'll make
3: it my Thanks for
1: listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: I'm safe when I reach San Antonio.
2: This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.